Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. It's the year 1913. The world order is about to explode, but most people are completely unaware. The Ottoman Empire is at war in the Balkans. There's a revolution underway in Mexico and a coup in Istanbul. Women around the world are agitating for their rights. New literary and artistic movements are challenging the old order, and the old order is fighting back. At a performance of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring in Paris, audiences are so enraged they begin a riot. Today on Ideas, the fourth installment in our series, The Shock of the New, on how change happens. We're exploring what Salman Rushdie calls a hinge moment in history. Moments when all must be remade, rethought, reimagined, and rewritten. Our panelists are Deborah Neal, Professor of History at York University, Sandeep Banerjee, Professor of English at McGill University, and Adam Hammond, Professor of English at the University of Toronto. This is the year 1913, the world on the brink. So acknowledging we're going to be asking some very big questions in a very short amount of time, we thought it might be good to hear from each of you just a little microcosm, a little story that gives us a sense of how you imagine uh, 1913 and the importance behind 1913. So perhaps we'll start with you, Deborah. Uh, Deb, sorry. When you think about that year and the era, the whole era that it represents, is there a story that encapsulates the moment in history for you? I've been thinking about Russia. I think a lot of us are thinking about Russia these days. And 1913 is interesting because it's the 300th anniversary of the Romanovs on the imperial throne. And it's a year of vast celebrations and pageantry and costumes and, you know, tins with the czar's face on it and, and uh, commemorative mugs, presumably. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and these trips along the, in yachts along the rivers to meet the people. And the czar and czarina are very confident and happy that they have the love and support of not just Russia itself, but the whole empire. So for me, this moment is... Uh, a moment where they're celebrating stability. Things have been the same for a really long time, but there's a huge dark side. And this is the part that I find really fascinating. I mean, in 1905, Russia had lost this war against Japan. Japan was a rising power in the East. It had been a humiliating defeat that showed the limits of their military. They were, had, a, had had a revolution in the wake of this. The czar had been forced to grant a constitution and a parliament, but he was trying his best to ignore it. The empire's program of bringing people together was in some ways a, a, the politics of oppression. And that was problematic. If you're a Ukrainian speaker, you're being told you have to speak Russian. And so it's a really interesting moment in 1913 of everything's great, except 
oh, we're facing a lot of systemic and immediate problems that we're not entirely sure the existing system can solve. Mm. And so that story for me encapsulates both the promise of 1913 and the incredible danger that people are in, whether they realize it or not. Wow. Yeah. Kind of gives you goosebumps. When a little you bit. You just don't know. Yeah. You just don't know. That's wonderful. Thank you. Adam, when you think of 1913, what comes to mind? Okay, I have this image that's a very new image, actually. I've been thinking, racking my brain for the last couple of weeks, trying to think of what is the one story. And then I see this viral image, an optical illusion that's been going around lately. Maybe you've seen this image. It's a polka dot background, and in the front, something looks like a big dark cloud. And if you look at this dark cloud, it looks like you're moving into it, even though it's not moving. Mm. It's a very bizarre experience. On the one hand, when you think back to 1913, you can't help but imagine what's coming next in 1914. And it's like, I bet that's what it would have felt like. I, I know what's coming. It's like moving into this dark cloud. But things get really interesting when you understand why our brains process the image this way. We're trained... Uh, to live, to imagine like where we're going in the future. And actually, it takes a little while for our brains to process reality. We're actually always predicting what's about to come next. And so when you see this thing that looks like a hole, you imagine yourself heading into it because uh, you're like making a guess based on reality. Mm. Now, the big content for me about this story is I think that's what reality was like in 1913. Mm. It was weird. You're realizing that you think you have, you know, you look around the room and everything seems stable and in place. This optical illusion trains you that you're just imagining that, you're projecting it, you're building up this solid reality out of incredibly complicated, conflicting data that's coming towards you. So 1913, Freud's interpretation of dreams is translated into English for the first time. The text that teaches you this difference between what appears on the surface and what's underneath. It's the year of Bohr's model of the atom. Matter itself, which seems so solid, if you get close enough, it's like there are electrons orbiting and a nucleus. It's this incredibly complicated thing. Like It's a time where the closer you go to reality, the more you realize how weird it is. And just everyday life, I think people have the sense that things are strange. Gender norms are changing. Europeans visiting New York in this year apparently would find women just seemed so aggressive and pushy and so intent on having a good time. Um, what's going on in this world? <laughs> Suffragettes in the year are protesting by breaking windows and slashing works of art. It's, it's just a year where things seem odd. And literature and art is starting to reflect this. Literature is training people to notice how weird reality is and to maybe come to grips with it. Feels like you're talking about today. <laughs> yes. Uh, Sandy, please, your story. Right. 1913, I think, is a good year to think about the phrase dream world and catastrophe. Because, of course, 1914 is the start of the First World War. But it's also a moment in 1913 when the first non-European, non-Westerner, Rabindranath Tagore's Bengali poet in India wins the Nobel Prize. And it's a recognition, of course, of the non-Western literary field. But also this is a kind of a hinge moment, a hinge year for literature and culture to be put in the service of decolonization. And, and this is a larger history of which Tagore is a very important story. But 1913 is also when uh, Rosa Luxemburg, the German revolutionary, publishes The Accumulation of Capital, which tries to understand the relationship, the first attempt to understand the relationship between colonialism and capitalism. And this is going to be followed up all the way to 1917, 
where Bukharin, another uh, Russian revolutionary, will publish Imperialism and the World Economy, and very importantly, Lenin, uh, Imperialism, the High Stage of Capital. So this is one process that begins. And the other important, well, two other political developments that are important. One is the setting up of the Gadar Party in Astoria in Oregon, which is a party set up by expat Indians against uh, British rule. And once the First World War starts, they kind of try and mobilize public opinion for a kind of uh, overthrowing of the uh, British, uh, British rule in India. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is uh, related to Canada. In uh, November 1913, a Canadian judge overturns the proposed repatriation of 38 Sikhs to India, uh, who had come uh, to Canada seeking immigration on the Panama Maru. And this rule will be changed in 1914, but the passengers of Komagatamaru do not know that. And so 1914, they set sail, hoping to gain immigration. So a whole bunch of things are happening. But I think uh, a certain kind of utopianism is kind of let loose in the world alongside, as I said, this catastrophic imagination. And the uncertainty, yeah. Thank you very much. So that gives us all a a small, I guess, snapshot of what was happening in 1913. But I think to really understand the era, we need to look at some of the years preceding the year before we actually get into detail of the year itself. So when you look at the years preceding 1913, what are some of the forces that you think really kind of were important in shaping the world in the decades leading up to 1913. So Adam, I thought I'd start with you. Sure. Yeah. Well, because I'm so excited about the nature of reality, 1905 is special relativity for Einstein. So, I mean, it takes so long for these ideas to actually circulate that like, we still in this room probably don't really understand what that means, except for the idea that reality is very complicated and there's all these this relativity. I feel like the... The period leading up to 1913 is a period where there are all kinds of really exciting and modern ideas, but the world, the actual structures, the people in power, it's the same old people. Mm. Even up to 1913, it's still the old guard. It's still aristocrats running things. Uh, It's still the same old audiences. So when I look back, especially in literary and artistic history, you see things like Cubism, expressionist, abstract art is starting to develop. Everything that can be exciting and odd in modernist literature, like Virginia Woolf has been writing, uh, multiple perspectives, stream of consciousness, it all exists, but it hasn't found root yet. Mm. You actually, you needed a catastrophe in some ways to break the old order and to bring in a new order. Sandy? So I think Asia is kind of moving at at this time in very interesting ways. Uh, Deb mentioned the Russo-Japanese War of 1905. There's also the the Chinese Revolution, the Chinese Democratic Revolution is happening at this time, 1911-12. There is revolution in uh, Turkey. Uh, So there's a whole bunch of people conscious about their rights at this moment, and they're pushing back against the lords of humankind, Mm -hmm. in a sense, and pushing back quite uh, well, and setting setting the ball rolling for what becomes the radical nature of what has been called the short 20th century. So speaking of rights, maybe a more directed question to you, Deb. The, the Mexican Revolution was also, mm-hmm. you know, right. s- starting in that period, 1910, sparked by anger about inequality yeah. and, and, you know, economic issues. I'm wondering how much, and of course the wealthy elite, which we've alluded to, how was economic inequality affecting 
politics, not just in Mexico, but everywhere else in that period kind of leading up to 1913. Yeah. And the violence of the Mexican revolution is something to think about too. There's, there's a lot of violence related to colonialism and inequity. And if you're European and you live, especially in Western Europe, you think of this period as being very peaceful, but the reality was, is that Europeans were, and Americans in the case of Mexico were interfering a lot in other countries and they were fighting what they called wars of pacification against a variety of colonial peoples in Africa and elsewhere. And income inequality is, I think, one of the most intractable problems in 1913 Europe. And it's the highest peak of income inequality that we know of until perhaps now. Mm. <laughs> you know, 1% of the British elite owns 70% of the UK's wealth. But it's also across, across regions across the world where a handful of European powers are controlling much of the world surfaces, and they're using the global south in particular as a place to take resources to enrich their own societies and economies. So you have income inequality really challenging the status quo within European countries and also the status quo globally. Sandeep, can you just pick up on that in terms of what was going on in Asia? How much of that was kind of the, the economically disadvantaged fighting against the elite? Well, uh, in, in the case of Asia, and I'm thinking here of British India, this kind of pushing back goes all the way back to 1857, where we have the first major and a kind of violent pushback against the British anywhere in the empire. And, and this kind of is obviously very brutally put down. And this comes back, as it were, to haunt British India. In 1905, there's the partition of Bengal, which kind of kickstarts the kind of wave of decolonization. And from 1905 onwards, we see the British kind of giving voting rights to initially 2% of the population, then to 6% of the population. And uh, by the time you come to 1920s, about 12% of Indians have the right to vote. This is dependent on, you know, property ownership and education. Mm -hmm. So so, so there is this movement. We still... Uh, we we see a lot of collaboration between Irish nationalists and Indian nationalists at this point. In a sense, Indians trying to imitate the Irish home rule uh, movement and trying to set up an India home rule movement. This runs aground in 1918, but it's a very important moment of collaboration. And the Gadar party that I mentioned, it kind of both feeds into the communist movement in one end and a kind of revolutionary, non-communist kind of overthrow of British Empire, uh, uh, the British in India kind of movement. So it kind of is, in a sense, the non-Gandhian trajectory of the Indian freedom struggles. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Adam, as a last point, kind of before we get to the exact year, how did writers and, uh, you know, I guess artists, but writers in particular grapple with the changing sense of self that was happening at the time. Mm. When thinking about this inequality, uh, and there's a, a really interesting image from Virginia Woolf. I'll give away that I work on Virginia Woolf, so I'm going to mention her a lot <laughs> today. There's always these years, you know, like what, what was the year? Was it 1912? Was it 1905? She, in a famous essay, um, she says that on or about December 1910, she says, I picked it somewhat at random, but 1910 is when it changes. She says, how were things different before and after December 1910? Before that time, one's cook, and it, it shows you her class position, one's cook was an inscrutable person somewhere in the basement who you never heard anything about. They just brought you your food, and, and that was it. After 1910, um, your cook would come up from the basement, ask for advice on a hat, and ask to borrow the newspaper. <laughs> and I believe she is making a larger point about, and she says, when things like that change, when your relationship to your cook changes and they start seeming, for instance, more like a person who is interested in the same things as you, everything changes. Religion, ethics, culture, 
everything. What about, um, what about Dr. Jekyll and Hyde? Is that, <laughs> where does that fill into the picture? I mean, okay, so Jekyll and Hyde, which is much earlier, but it's a novel or a novella that's about the fact that we all have multiple sides to ourselves. Um, and it's training us that each one of us is the respectable person and also has these sort of hidden Freudian drives. Now, the thing that excites me so much about this book is, and this is what artists are doing, it's written in a way that you can't really read it without getting that message. It mixes pronouns. It will say, Hyde is he and I. And so like by the end of the book, it's also this complicated form where one story is mixed into another. This is kind of what you know, I would argue modernist artists are doing is preparing the, the mental framework to accept how complicated the self is. 1913 is the year that Marcel Proust publishes the first volume of what I think is probably the greatest of all novels, this seven volume, 1.5 million word long, uh, In Search of Lost Time. Mm. Um, and he's got one of my favorite phrases is in that he refers to les moi en moi, the me's in me. So this is part of this, this complicated, multi-sided nature of reality, but also the self. Sometimes we don't even know ourselves particularly well. And art, I think it's, it's trying to expose this, but also train us to accept it and get comfortable with it, which I don't think ever really, like the war in some ways is a failure to become comfortable with uncertainty. So that project never quite developed. Yeah, I just as you're talking, I'm thinking about how deeply threatening this is to people. There are people who embrace it, who want to be part of it, who are trying to think in more modern or different ways. But there's people who are so afraid of, of what's coming or what's here. And the example from 1913 for me is Rites of Spring, which is Igor Stravinsky's very, at the time, shocking ballet that opens in Paris. Coco Chanel is there. Harry Kessler's there. And there's a near riot, or actually some historians say riot, in the theater almost immediately. I mean, people have shown up with their fancy outfits, as one did back then, and their top hats. I don't know if they had top hats. They probably had top hats. <laughs> anyway, <did>. yeah. And uh, <laughs> as soon as it starts, you know, there's these ba dancers stomping on the stage, and the music is very different from what you would see in a classical ballet. And it's almost like this playing out of people, uh, you know, Stravinsky, who is trying to do this work of bringing people into the modern and and the backlash against it all in one exciting moment in a theater. Mm -hmm. T.S. Eliot says the entire production reminded him of the blare of the car horn and the, the noise of the train. And I don't know if he thought that was a good thing or not. <laughs> oh, he would have liked it. <laughs> Sandy, pick and, up And bring it, uh, bringing it back to Freud, that's the other thing about the many me's, in a sense that you, you're suddenly encountering this reality of the unconscious, yeah. right? That you are a product of your repressed desires and there are, there's a part of you that you actually are not really in uh, touch with, but is very much in touch with you, controls you, yeah. determines who you are, yeah. and that is deeply unsettling. It's like you coming out and, you know, seeking the newspaper, as you mentioned. Yeah. Revolutionary, really, yeah. for the time, I'm sure. Yeah. I wonder, as I'm listening to you, from out here, from 2022, we can see the signs in 1913 that suggested that war was coming, that there was going to be a, a, a huge change in the world. What are the signs? Were there signs, like one or two that you can mention, if any, that would have signaled to people then that, hey, the world's about to change in a very big way the next year? Is there anything? Well, the Balkan War. Yeah. Um, you know, the war starts in the Balkans, but the Balkans are actually at war before that. They're at war against the Ottoman Empire, the various constituent 
uh, states, and then they're at war against each other in 1913. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Bismarck had once famously said, if there was ever going to be a general war, it would be because of some damned foolish thing in the Balkans. And, um, (laughs) you know... And and people had thought, well, maybe it would go. It would happen in Africa, where there was a lot of imperial rivalry. But the Europeans were much more deeply emotionally invested in what was happening on the continent of Europe, and the warning signs are already there in Serbia, in Bosnia Herzegovina, in the attitude that the Austro-Hungarians and the Russians have. So from a geopolitical point of view, we already have a war in that part of the world. It just hasn't become what it becomes in 1914. I've been thinking a lot about this idea of, you know, was war inevitable? And something like the Balkan Wars, I think, show how it's really hard to know. Something was going to happen, but how how are you going to predict what is going on? So, like, think of, like, the technologies that are emerging around this time. And it's a time of absolutely unprecedented technological change. You know, things that are new in this period are the wireless telegraph where you can mm. suddenly, you know, like talking about like the uh, the Titanic sinking and people know about it the next day, it's in the newspaper because wireless telegraphy allows that to happen. And, you know, expanding rail networks, motor cars, airplanes, a lot of these things are things that make the world smaller. And so everyone's thinking we're going to have a new internationalism, we'll have new international consciousness, everyone's incredibly linked together. Um, in fact, in 1909, this book called The Great Illusion is published by Norman Angel that says that war is impossible now because economies are so interlinked. Um, it cannot happen. And in 1913, you know, say about half the people believe that this to be true, that there could not conceivably be a war. But you can't predict the effects of these new technologies. So something like everyone's very connected, this goes hand in hand with the rise of nationalism in the Balkans, partly because uh, of a reaction against, well, it seems like everything's internationalizing. I want to be more myself now as a reaction against this change or new technologies open for communication and suddenly people have voices. And think about today, you know, like, oh, social media is going to bring everyone together or maybe it's going to create all of these little pockets of discontent. It can't be predicted. So in hindsight, of course, in 1913, the war seems inevitable. But I think in the moment, it was a very strong possibility, but no one knew it was coming and it could just as well have turned into this utopia. Yeah, just one last general point that I think to imagine the war, you have to think about it on two tracks. There's all these structural problems in these societies but you need contingency fact. You need things that happen in the moment in order to to create a war in the first place, and then to see that war turn into a general war. I mean, what what happened in July of 1914 was, in a way, quite bizarre. I mean, when I teach it, it's much easier to teach the origins of the Second World War than the first. To teach the first, you have to go through all of these structural issues that were present: militarism, imperialism, the arms buildup, empires versus colonies. There's all of these very grand themes, and then this crazy domino effect that happens in 1914. But if 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 Franz Ferdinand hadn't been assassinated, perhaps there never would have been a war. And then you know all the things we're reading into 1913, things would have developed differently. Certainly, there wouldn't have been a Russian Revolution without World War One. We can get into some what if history, which is dangerous territory. But <laughs> but the there has to be this combination of structural, deep structural problems in various societies and in various ways, plus the decisions in the moment. Yeah. But also, there's some random stuff too, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. like issues with telegrams going. Not being understood. Is that yeah? I was thinking about this when yeah. Adam was talking about the Titanic and the um, you know when the 
There was an article in The Atlantic before the First World War. They were talking about how afraid Americans were of the telegram and of electrification. It really upended the way people lived in their daily lives. And one group of Americans had said something like, it's too fast for truth. And, and I thought, that's a great way of thinking about social media. Um, yeah. and, uh, Nothing new under the sun. And there's a book by Stephen Kern called The Culture of Time and Space. And he analyzes telegrams that pass between the Kaiser and the Tsar in, during the cri- crisis of 1914. And what he, he argues is they kept missing each other. One was answering a telegram that was older than the newest one. One telegram came in with a sound, um, I don't know, the all caps of the day, you know, you're shouting. <laughs> um, one came in where the, the czar seemed like he was very angry and the Kaiser was angry in return, but he had misread the tele. Like these are old elites living in old ways, but they're using a new technology and it doesn't go so well. And Kern actually argues this is a factor in the war ramping up as Germany and, and Russia's leaders profoundly misunderstand each other because of the technology. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close. Something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb. On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Rabindranath Tagore, the Bengali poet and philosopher who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1913, set some of his poems to music. This is one of them. Tagore's poetic masterpiece was called the Gitanjali, which means an offering of songs. It includes a line that's often recited at memorials for the First World War. When I go from hence, let this be my parting word, that what I have seen is unsurpassable. When British war poet Wilfred Owen was killed in the trenches in 1918, he had that poem in his pocket. This is the year 1913, the world on the brink. Our panelists are Deborah Neal, Professor of History at York University, Sandeep Banerjee, Professor of English at McGill University, and Adam Hammond, Professor of English at the University of Toronto. Let's talk again about what you were talking about, Sandeep, earlier, which is how ideas were being uh, traded across borders. And we, we mentioned very briefly how people were thinking about nationalism. I'm wondering if, if you could address how ideas specifically about nationalism were circulating among writers 
So we just talked about the compression of space and time. There's also at this time an awareness that uh, while technology is bringing people together, it's also actually making people seem different. So there's also a space-time distanciation, right? So you realize that, yes, we're all part of the British Empire, but we are unequal members of the British Empire. Mm -hmm. So there is a certain understanding of quite literally your place, you know, in this kind of grand scheme of things, civilizational hierarchy, racial hierarchy. So these ideas get entrenched, developed, and we see the development of what could be called a spatial identity, that I am born in India, so therefore I am an Indian. And at the same time, you have the development of internationalism with with the Soviet Union being formed. And literature becomes, or culture broadly, becomes a very important vehicle for uh, sort of circulating these ideas. So Tagore writes... In in the case of Tagore, for instance, Tagore is a very interesting character because he's a trenchant critic of British uh, colonialism, but he's also, in a sense, anticipating someone like Franz Fanon in his critique of parochial nationalism. He doesn't want India or the other country he writes very critically about Japan. He doesn't want India, Japan or China to imitate the West and be the kind of, you know, uh, warlike, militaristic civilizations or cultures that he sees uh, Europeans uh, being. And in 1916, he uh, delivers a series of lectures in Japan and in San Francisco, where he's actually critiquing nationalism in the three essays, uh, nationalism in India, nationalism in Japan and nationalism in the West, where he's talking about, you know, it's it's very unlike Tagore, this uh, contest between capital and labor will produce human beings like Bale of cotton, he says, Mm. all uniform. And for him, literature becomes a very important vehicle to push back against this kind of uniformity that's being produced in the world. The example of Tagore, I just have to pick up on this a little bit. It's so interesting to see how, you know, how these ideas actually circulated and where they circulated. So Tagore is championed by Yeats um, and by another well-known poet, Ezra Pound. And these, these, Poets are excited about Tagore. They're saying, you know, what we're saying, that he's going to, he's going to bring the world together, shows this like idea of universal brotherhood. But really, are they really seeing him or are they seeing themselves? Like W.B. Yeats gets excited about Tagore because he seems to be against the British Empire, but Yeats is a nationalist. And he's seeing Tagore through the lens of um, this very, like Irish perspective. Um, Absolutely. And Tagore's reception in different parts of Europe, it's it's very different. So uh, in Ireland and in England, he's seen as this kind of sage of India, Mm. childlike simplicity and what have you. In continental Europe, he's taken on as a more political figure. Mm. Uh, So his play Post Office, which is about a child who's been diagnosed as, you know, with an illness and he's been told to stay in a room for the rest of his life, and eventually dies. Now, this is a play that is put up by uh, Janusz Korczak in the uh, Warsaw Ghetto with children. This is a little later, and it's read out on French radio the day Paris falls to uh, the Nazi troops. The, the other thing that was going on at the time, and you hinted at this, Deb, earlier, is, is the women's suffragette movement, obviously. And I wonder if you could talk about Uh, how changes in gender relations affected the conversation about the nature of this new society developing. Yeah, again, you you have this um, great hope that women are going to be enfranchised. You know, voting rights had been tied to property for a long time, and it was only men who, who owned property who could vote. But the first 
crack in, in that idea comes in the late 19th century where um, in Germany and elsewhere, all men are enfranchised and, you know, universal manhood suffrage, but it doesn't include women. And it's it's a long campaign to include women in this. And in, in some cases, there's actually some clear wins before 1914 in Finland and in Norway, but in the UK, and Adam can speak to this as well, I think, there's quite a lot of, of violent confrontations as women are are up against a very established set of norms and gender-specific ideas about their place in society, and they are struggling very much to to get the vote. I mean, I, I remember as a little kid watching Mary Poppins, you know, the, the suffragette wife of the votes for women. There's even a song. Um, mm. But what they're, it's not just about getting to vote. It's about being seen differently, being seen as full citizens. You know, in, in the late 19th century, women are no longer considered property under UK law, under British law, which is mind-bogglingly late. But it, it's, it's also about redefining the kind of role they have outside of the home. And so the, the pushback isn't just about allowing women to vote or, or, or not. It, it's about the redefining of, of gender, mm. which is deeply threatening to, to some people and is a polarizing set of issues around how a society is supposed to work. Absolutely. Adam, can you pick up from that? Yeah. I, I, if you look through like newspapers from 1913, suffragism is a huge story. It's really traumatic. Every day it, it's received sort of like terrorism. And, and, the, and the program works exactly according to that logic. But halfway through the year, this famous and really horrifying event happens where someone named Emily Davison, uh, a suffragette, runs into the, the Ascot race, uh, big horse race, runs after the king's horse, jumps onto it, and dies. And it's, it shocks everyone. They're watching this, this horse race, and suddenly um, there's someone dead. Uh, there's a huge funeral procession. Everyone's attention is on this event um, and on this this issue, and it's not just even suffragism. It's all kinds of issues around gender. It's suddenly you see that gender roles are malleable. The first sex change operation had happened in 1912. There's new experiments showing that injecting testosterone into female animals will lead to them behaving exactly like men, um, suddenly or males. Um, suddenly, everything seems very fluid about gender, and. Also, you think of suffragism as being a relatively straightforward movement. We want to vote. In fact, if you look into it, there are incredible disagreements among activist women, some saying, why should we be campaigning for a vote? We don't need official designation of ourselves as people to be people. And so they would reject this whole idea of needing a vote, saying that that's a really regressive movement. It was such a person, this woman, Dora Marsden, who's one of my heroes of the period, um, she broke with suffragism and started a little magazine called The Free Woman, which then went bankrupt and had to be relaunched under the slightly disguised title The New Free Woman. And then <laughs> the creditors wouldn't have noticed that. And then was, was shut down again and relaunched as The Egoist. And this became the place that all of the great modernist writers were published for the first time. Yeah. James Joyce, uh, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, appears in this magazine, The Egoist. There's this alignment of like underground yeah. radical people that is just starting to take place. We've talked uh, about so many different strands of things that, were, that have been changing in that period. How do we get from all this kind of slow power contests and, and gradual transformations to the, here's a big question, to the conflagration of the First World War. 
I think one of the things that we now almost take for granted, you know, war is mechanized, right? Mm -hmm. This is happening for the first time, you know, Adam mentioned technology. Uh, the First World War is a moment where war becomes mechanized in a big way. You have airplanes which have been developed about a decade or so ago, and now you have, you're using this to actually hurl bombs at others. You have chemical warfare coming in, mm. uh, chlorine being used in the, in the uh, battlefront, sort of uh, chemical warfare as we know it, so that's banned now. So in a sense, the war um, accelerates technological development and it moves away from sort of the promise of, you know, equality and you know, brotherhood and bringing everyone together that uh, sort of we, or at least people associated with science in, in at this moment. What one sees in the First World War is that kind of the failed promise of technology and uh, one sure route to the conflagration that you're mentioning. I'm really glad you talked about the mechanization of warfare. And I mean, this is an era of massive arms buildup. What, what they're, you don't, buy this many weapons, like, what are you planning on doing with them? Probably using them. Um, and a lot of people are making a lot of money in the weapons manufacturing industry. And then the other part of this is in the late 19th century, the wars were primarily in the global South, European armies against the global South. And they were, you know, the Europeans had an enormous technological advantage, which is why they were able to win wars in, in various parts of West Africa, for example. But they learned some really bad lessons from this um, long period of so-called peace. What they learn is that machine guns are a great weapon and they, you, you can win wars very quickly and easily with machine guns, except that they were fighting people who didn't have machine guns. And so when you get to 1914, when everybody has machine guns, you are in for a totally different kind of war. And Adam, can, can you talk about, you know, specifically all these things that we saw ahead of the war, you know, this drive for new political and cultural values how that might have contributed to being a root cause or, or inflaming, I guess, the possibility of war. Mm -hmm. Well, you see all kinds of different things in terms of technology and war, specifically in these artistic movements. Like some of the, you look back and you think of, the, there are these really exciting avant-garde movements like futurism and someone like Marinetti who talked about war as this kind of cleansing uh, experience. Like Marinetti was obsessed with destroying the old and bringing in the new. And so technology and war technology seemed like this wonderful opportunity to destroy the old guard and bring in the new. You have other artists saying this is incredibly naive and destructive um, and let's resist that a little bit. I think artists aren't the ones to look to for they didn't see the war coming. Um, I don't think they, like like Marinetti, you don't want to trust the artists with uh, with deciding on your war plans. <laughs> but they're the ones who helped us understand it. Yeah. I think yeah. I think it's it took years. It took decades. The books of the 20s and 30s are obsessed with the war, returning to it. What did it mean? What were its root causes? Where did it lead us? Modernism that comes after, if you've thought about poets like... Eliot and poems like The Wasteland, you think of a, a gloomy, depressing account of the world. And there is a lot of that just coming to terms with the horrors of what everyone's been through. Deb. Yeah, if I can go forward a little bit too, the reaction against modernism by the fascist movements in Italy and Germany tell us a lot about how, in a way, Hitler, you know, he, he had been an artist. He was quite a, a traditional artist in a lot of ways. He was deeply threatened by 
painters who painted a world that he thought they made the world ugly, and he was especially hostile to interpretations of World War I that portrayed it in all of its awfulness. And a huge target of the Nazi movement were artists um, like uh, Remark, All Quiet on the Western Front, a, a writer, a memoir that um, is very unsparing in its depiction of the horrors of war and the way the world has changed. Part of what the Nazis want to do is hearken back to this alleged time before where uh, Germany had not been humiliated, you know, back to 1913 when Germany was a world power and art was stable and the, the you know, the, the family was stable and, and the world was Germany's to have. So the extremes of the war create help to fuel this backlash, which um, in turn fuels the, the Nazi and the fascist movement in Italy. The next year in our series after this, and for all of you who are interested, is 1947, which is, you know, a huge year in, in recent history. It was the partition of India and the beginning of the, of the 1947 to 49 war in the Middle East. Are you able to connect any dots? And I know it's a big question, but can you connect any dots between 1913 and 1947? So Sandeep and then Deb. So there is, of course, uh, imperial rule continues in its kind of diverse and uneven form. So one of the things that connects almost late 19th century all the way to the mid 20th century is the issue of famines. And uh, you have this in Ireland, obviously, mm -hmm. and you have this in India. So it starts actually from the 18th century, 1740s in Ireland, 1770s in Bengal. 1940s, uh, 43 to 45 is the Great Bengal Famine. And uh, so you see a kind of through line exacerbated by the various wars because produce is being taken out of uh, various uh, imperial uh, possessions, particularly British India, and sent to troops. Uh, so that's one. Uh, the second thing is, of course, uh, Indian troops, particularly Indian troops, being used as essentially cannon fodder in the First World War and yeah. also in the Second World War. Yeah. And this leads both to a developing sharpening of kind of the decolonization and what have you, but also leads to the kind of violence that we see 47 marked by, at least in the Indian subcontinent. Okay. And Deb? Yeah. I mean, the First World War upends everything in some way or another, it actually shows a lot of people in the global South that the Europeans who have tried to present themselves as strong and powerful and, and um, militarily superior, I mean, the, the emperor has no clothes. And so we see, the, we see the start of these real political resistance movements that I think, as you're saying, that's something you can pull through. But World War I actually doesn't do much to change the status quo for Great Britain and France uh, and, you know, who have these massive overseas empires in terms of the immediate political, if anything, they gain, right? They gain mm. territories in the Middle East under mandates or otherwise. They gain Germany's colonies in Africa one way or the other. So it's really, it, it's really only after World War II that the, the beginning of those political nationalist movements really only come to fruition after World War II. And I think there's something interesting there about, about imperialism as a system that is really hard to break down. And there's a new book by Richard Overy, who's a wonderful historian of World War II, and he calls it, I think it's called The Last Imperial War. But the, the idea of this book is imperialism, the beast, the, the, the great British and French versions anyway, has not been slain as a result of World War I. And so I think a lot about how it took another worse war in order to give people the right of self-determination that they had been fighting for in the global South for a much longer period. Yeah. So if the premise of this conversation is 
determining how change happens. When you look back at 1913, are there machinations or processes or just observations you might have that happened back then that might help us understand how it is that change happens in general. Adam, can I start with you? I'm obsessed with the the kind of material, practical ways that art gets made and circulated and that artists spread their ideas. So when I look at 1913, I see a lack of, of infrastructure I see artists with no way of spreading their ideas. They don't have controls over the publishing houses. Um, they're not running their own presses. When I see the interwar years, and sorry again for the Virginia Woolf reference, in 1913, she's sending her novel off to some random publisher. In fact, the publisher is her evil half-brother who would abuse her as a child. By 1917, towards the end of the war, she's starting her own press. And in the 1920s, she becomes... Virginia Woolf. She starts writing like Virginia Woolf because she runs her own publishing company. Mm. Um, then things start happening. Um, you can control the way that you spread your idea. I think change happens in these really practical ways. It's not just about having good ideas, but about building the infrastructure to spread it. Um, so I get excited when I think about new forms and new infrastructures and new ways that writers get their ideas or artists get their ideas out. My latest book might seem like it has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. It's about independent video games. <laughs> it's, about, <laughs> it's about a new kind of video game that you can make yourself instead of having to make it in a huge team with a massive budget. And I think artists with wild ideas about new ways of living and new social orders um, can spread their ideas when they take charge over the, the artistic forms that they control. So I'm excited about change happening in these in these incredibly practical ways. Never predictable. Um, you never know what's going to happen exactly. But if you can empower certain voices to speak openly, and I think that's that's where I get hope these days. Deb, I've been thinking about being a historian and what it is that we think we're doing when we uh, read and study history. And I think there's two tracks. One is we like stories. We like to learn about people we didn't know about before. We like to tell the stories of the forgotten. We like to tell the stories of the great and powerful and the people who take them down. But the other one is explaining change over time. And historians will be very careful about trying to predict the future. But one thing I think that we can get from studying history is an understanding of structural underpinnings. And, you know, technology is a huge disruptor. Economic inequality is a major disruptor. And both things I've listed are things we're grappling with in our own time as well. Geopolitical intransigence by people in power and people pushing against it. And then after saying all this, nothing's inevitable. So there has to be these contingencies, these moments, these important decision-making times. We might not even know we're in them, but what we do in the moment can determine the outcome of the problem. And so when I think about Russia in 1913, I think about Russia in 2022. And that to me is what can we learn considering, you know, somebody like Vladimir Putin really harkens back to the imperial period as something that back, you know, when, when Russia was this great empire. So there's things we can learn from this period, but we have to look at the underlying structures in order to maybe not make predictions, but to have an understanding of how change might happen. 
Sorry. And I just want to uh, pick up on this phrase, underlying structures, and I'm thinking here of uh, Raymond Williams, very famous theorist, and he has this phrase, structures of feeling, yeah. right? It's this kind of absolutely unimaginable, but nevertheless, a kind of change in structure of thought. Mm. So it's like, you know, for the first time, someone writes LMAO in response to a, <laughs> a you know, a SMS, and you don't know what it is. It's just like an individual tick, and yeah. then... It changes and it becomes a, what's called new literacy. <laughs> uh, so that's that's the kind of thing he has in mind. That yeah. no matter how stable the present seems, the present is never stable. We are always living in a heterotemporal world. You know, mm -hmm. there is a kind of dominant way of doing things, but there's also certain emergent ideas that are you know bubbling just below the surface. Sure. And given the right conditions. Yeah. They're going to emerge, you know, and as you said, 1913, 1917 and 22, it's kind of uh, uh, push back to uh, imperial Russian era. But, but my reductionist brain, though, wants a formula. And, and I, I'm looking at I'm looking at the list you made, Deb, and you're saying economic change, huge disruption by technology. Is it necessary that all of these things have to be there for a, a hinge moment to happen? No, I don't yeah. think so. Okay. Uh, I think there are moments of technological disruption that are greater than others, for example. We're in one. Um, yeah. And yet. <laughs> and yet. So I definitely think that there has to be some kind of economic... Like, there's been no major revolution that hasn't involved a major economic problem. Bread riots, right? Bread riots in the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution. So there, there has to be a material crisis in order for something to entirely fall apart. The Bengal... You know... The horrific things that happened in India in the Second World War really are, are a major factor in what happens next, for example. Uh, yes, but yeah. I'm also thinking here about, shall we say, this, uh, you know, the small footprints of history. And I'm going to stick my neck out and say, Please. I think culture, the cultural domain right. actually sets up the conditions of possibility. You're not an economic determinist? No. <laughs> Does that surprise you? <laughs> so the cultural realm really sets up the conditions of possibility that are then sharpened by right. political or economic mm -hmm. or environmental crises. But there has to be a preparation of the mind. So you have, I think, from 1913 onwards, for a good 20 years, people realizing, yes, we can, for instance, govern ourselves. So in 1940s, you get decolonization in sort of the, in large letters, because the small letters have been put into action for a good, you know, two decades or so. The crises that, that you're talking about can sharpen things, can bring them forward, but nothing comes out of nothing is actually what I'm saying to mm. uh, invoke Shakespeare here. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? We're in the right place. But it, I guess the, the other way of asking the same question is, is there something we learn from 1913 that really can tell us whether we are currently living this transformative time? If we don't solve the problems that we know are in front of us, because there was a lot, especially the, the sort of my, myopic way that Europe was very focused in on itself, even though it was dominating and controlling much of the world, Europe and the United States. It, some of its leaders were willfully blind to the consequences of their actions and not able or willing to resolve some of the problems that the existing systems um, had created. So instead of trying to work with the German parliament or in the Tsar's case, trying to work with the Duma, the, the, the Russian parliament, the, the old leaders are actively working against it. So there's a, a political, a major political problem that seems to be on the table. And, mm. and I think a lot about responsible politics 
and the lack of responsible politics, particularly in 1914. But I do think a lot about, about that issue of actually trying to think creatively and the, the, the possible, you know, stretching what we think is possible with the problems we can see right in front of us right now before they become much bigger and much more uh, dangerous problems. I think we all know we're in a potential hinge moment right now, right? Like everyone can feel it, that the world could change at the drop of a hat. And I think I feel that I'm not the one who's going to decide whether that's going to happen. You know, like I feel a sense of alienation from being able to decide that. And I think that's a very 1913 sensation. Mm -hmm. You can recognize a crisis, but you're also aware that it feels like it's completely out of your hands. Who's got their, their finger on the button? Um, this is another Virginia Woolf one from beginning of World War II. She hears German bomber planes flying overhead all the time, and it's profoundly depressing to her uh, that this is happening and that she can't stop it. And she's asking herself, well, what can I do? Can I, should I join the army? And she has this insight that she writes in her diary. She says, no, the army is the body and I am the mind. Thinking is my fighting. So all that I can do is, is think, fight with thinking. And I think, you know, this is a moment where we're all aware of what's happening and we have to think of what our particular kind of fighting is and what kind of change we can make while also being fully aware and this is back to my opening image that we we don't ever really even fully inhabit the present we're always just projecting making our best possible calculations trying to imagine a future and trying to imagine the best future we can from this position and if anything, there are certain additional uh, issues that have been sharpened in recent times, the environmental crisis. Yes. For instance, yeah. uh, we're living through periodic economic crises. That's not new. But uh, the epidemic, the pandemic, yes. uh, coupled with economic crisis, coupled with the environmental crisis, coupled with, you know, refugees uh, coming, coupled with people closing the borders to them, sending off to Rwanda or what have you. So all of these kind of make it uh, in some ways more of a hinge moment and uh, something's got to give kind of uh, sense. On that note, <laughs> I, I'm deeply indebted to all of you. Thank you for your insights. Deb and Adam and Sandeep, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank and you. Thank you, thank you for your great questions. Thank you. On Ideas, you've been listening to The Year 1913, The World on the Brink. It's the fourth part of our series, The Shock of the New, a collaboration with the Stratford Festival in Ontario. Joining me were Deborah Neal, Professor of History at York University, Sandeep Banerjee, Professor of English at McGill University, and Adam Hammond, Professor of English at the University of Toronto. Tune in tomorrow for part five of our series, The Year 1947, Fractures and Tectonic Shifts. The series was produced by Philip Coulter, Pauline Holdsworth, and me, Nala Ayad. At the Stratford Festival, special thanks to Julie Miles and her team, Greg McLaughlin and Liz Thomas. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. The technical producer for Ideas is Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.